Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the show. Now, two-thirds of the British population face being driven into fuel poverty by the beginning of next year. That's according to a new study by the University of York. Now, in a wealthy society such as our own, one of the biggest economies on the face of the planet, the fact that a large majority of the British population face being unable to pay their energy bills is clearly nothing short of a social catastrophe. It's the year 2022, and we are talking, as I've said, about the majority of people being unable to pay to, 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 to pay in exchange for one of the most basic needs we have to be able to heat our homes and provide, again, one of the most basic utilities that human civilization depends on. Now, real wages have already suffered before the current crisis, the longest squeeze that they've had since the Napoleonic Wars. But now we're looking already at the worst fall on top of that in real wages ever recorded. It's all right for some, though, isn't it? Record profits, of course, booming profits for the energy companies. And earlier this year, the UK hit a new milestone, creating the highest number of billionaires in its history. Now, looking at all of this, the government and their apologists will say, we've had a pandemic followed by a war. In fact, they keep saying that. They're sticking very clearly to that script. And clearly, both of those are huge shocks, which have caused a massive crisis. But there's something rotten about the structure of the British economy and British society. This isn't just a freak weather storm, which the government has limited options to deal with. With decisive radical action, then we can avoid a calamity which faces driving large portions, as I've said, of the British population into total and utter disaster. Now, we've got some great guests on today. Uh, later on, we're speaking to a brilliant representative from Don't Pay UK. That's a new campaign which has been set up, urging people not to pay their energy bills. Um, before we start, as ever, do click on the YouTube link if you're watching live uh, and press like. Um, helps the algorithm. Uh, do subscribe. Um, we didn't do a show on Sunday. Sorry about that. Things have been pretty chaotic. As you see, I'm not even in my, not even in my own flat. Um, but we've got lots of videos coming up with lots of brilliant people, including... Um, of course, looking at the Enough is Enough campaign, which is a new mass movement, uh, particularly being driven by the RMT, uh, the Rail and Maritime Transport Union, um, and the Communication Workers Union, amongst others, including the left-wing Labour MP Zara Sultana, uh, who we are hoping to be interviewing very soon, as well as, for example, Dave Ward, the General Secretary of the CWU. These are some of the leaders, I suppose, of this new mass resistance, this mass opposition movement, which some would argue is filling a vacuum, which uh, is an absence of leadership. Um, Today as ever, to support the show, use uh, Super Chats. If you use Super Chats, then we can, I'll thank everyone at the end, but I'll put the questions directly, of course, uh, to the guests. And just to start, let's start firstly with Jack Monroe, who I'm also hoping to speak to soon, who is a brilliant campaigner, particularly on the issue of food poverty. And just 
this is her talking about the impact of the current crisis on on millions of people. How concerned are you about the current situation? And and do you think things are going to get worse before they get better? Good morning to you. Um, good morning. Um, I think, well, as for how concerned I am, I mean, I, it's, I hear daily, almost hourly, from people who are absolutely petrified that they are not going to survive this crisis. That's how concerned I am. Um, and although I'm I'm the one that gets the platform and gets to go on the radio shows and gets to gets to talk about this stuff, um, the the reality is people out there on the ground are terrified that they're they're literally not going to live through the winter. Disabled people who have life saving equipment that they need to, to electricity to run to keep them alive. You know things like dialysis machines. Um, all sorts of different bits of equipment. If people cannot afford to turn their to turn their plugs on, to turn those pieces of equipment on, the reality is that they will die. Sobering stuff there. Now we're already seeing mass movements, I suppose, emerging. We're seeing people taking to the streets before the autumn and winter, where this looming social catastrophe obviously is going to hit British society. Uh, we can hear the thunder in the distance and already people obviously suffering hugely in Britain. But let's just look at some protesters who marched on Scottish power um, over, of course, the hiking of the energy bills that people are, are enjoying. <laughs> always heartening to see people taking to the streets rather than just yelling at their television screens which unfortunately is often the case even when social calamity hits us now we are very very lucky to have joining us miata van buller the ceo of course of the new economics foundation who really are uh, an absolute powerhouse of ideas about how we can change the economy about how we can change society and build a society which isn't uh run in the interest of a tiny elite. Now, uh, that's a firstly great, great to see you. Um, I just want to start, just in terms of the government's arguments, they'd say, look, come on, there's been a massive pandemic, a once in a century event in which obviously much of the world was locked down. That has consequences. And now we have as well, at the same time, the biggest war in Europe uh, since World War II with a massive impact, of course, on prices. What would you say just in terms of, look, there's a crisis. What well, you know? That's out of our hands. Well, look. I think the root cause of the cost of living crisis that we're seeing now predates the pandemic. It predates the war in Ukraine. Um, and like, I keep emphasising the point. The thing that makes this feel so painful is the fact that we've pretty much had nearly getting on for 15 years in which living standards have not budged, in which there has been a squeeze on people's wages. Uh, we already had a situation where one in three people were struggling to make ends meet. Half of kids were struggling to make ends meet. They were in families where they couldn't afford the essentials. And so you throw in this sort of shock, these massive um, spiraling prices, and it will feel absolutely catastrophic because people did not and do not have any cushion, any room to manoeuvre in order to navigate through this. So yes, there have been crises, but the roots of this has been more than 10 years in the making. 
So in terms of, because, you know, I keep quoting this, the longest squeeze in wages since the Napoleonic War, the early 19th century, the TEC have often trumpeted that. Before, just before we talk about the current crisis, what would you attribute that? I mean, you know, because actually, I mean, I don't know what the latest statistics were, but of the OECD countries, the kind of industrialized countries, I suppose, loosely defined, uh, for a long time, the only country with the, with the longest squeeze in their wages was Greece, other than Britain. Why Britain? Why has Britain, because obviously there was a financial crash which affected the whole world, why did Britain have such a uniquely bad protracted squeeze in wages? Well, I think it's two things. It's quite interesting because if you look across uh, advanced economies, actually stagnant wages or periods of stagnant wages is a feature across the piece. So you see it in the US, we see it in parts of Europe, and we see it here as well. But it, Britain feels uniquely bad for two reasons, partly because I think the erosion of protections in our labour market has been far more severe. You know, we smashed unions. You know, if you look at parts of Western Europe, collective bargaining and that social partnership between workers through unions on the one hand and employers is a core part of the way that their economic model works. Um, and we completely dismantled that and dismantled the power of workers in order to negotiate better deals. Um, we also drove through you know, parts of our economy, particularly things like retail and hospitality, zero hour contracts, flexible working, they call it, but where you're essentially paying people very little, giving them very little insecurity in order to do the job at hand. And then you combine that, for me, with the fact that we have massively eroded our social protections. You know, the, whether that is the welfare state, whether that is our public services, the things that sit alongside income to ensure that people have decent living standards. And we've had 10 years in which we've just hacked away at that. So there is a trend, and for me, that trend is a function of the fact that I think our economic model is breaking down. Uh, you know, that kind of promise that people would be okay if you worked hard in the system, you would do better and your kids would do better than you. That is clearly breaking down. But it feels uniquely painful in this country because we have moved further in terms of hacking away at the power and the capacity of workers to get good wages combined with the fact that we've absolutely denuded our social protections. So in terms of, before we come on to kind of what happens next, the pandemic and the war in Ukraine, what, why has that had such a, I mean, because that is obviously going to hit, I mean, th then the, the question is, how do you respond to that? Uh, rather than treating it as just kind of a natural weather system and just hope it blows over and do nothing in the meanwhile. So wh why, you know, the pandemic people might be just completely, you know, perplexed. Why does a pandemic the, the, the unraveling of the pandemic, why has it had such an impact which has collided with the war in Ukraine? Yeah, so, I mean, the impact is particularly on prices and price rising, and for two reasons. So if you imagine during the pandemic, all economies, or all major economies across the world shut down. Um, and that means businesses, suppliers, providers shut down. And then we pretty much all opened up around the same time at varying degrees of speed, but we opened up at the same time. So suddenly there was a surge in demand. We wanted things again because the economies were starting to move. And the people who were producing and supplying that stuff were just starting to wake up. We're just starting to rebuild their businesses. We're just starting to produce things. And so you have huge supply chain bottlenecks combined with a surge in demand that has led to kind of rising prices. So... Price rises were coming anyway, inflation was coming anyway as a consequence of, if you like, the unraveling of the pandemic, but it probably would have been quite temporary. Uh, so, you know, a lot of experts were looking at it and were like, well, this is a short term blip. We're expecting this to be maybe six months to a year. 
And then you have the war in Ukraine. And that's had a particularly unique impact on two things, energy prices, uh, because Russia controls such a big chunk of uh, gas um, and to a less extent oil that's going into Europe. Um, and as the war has disrupted that, but also Russia has, if you like, uh, tightened its uh, supply, that's meant that prices have gone up, which means that countries like us that don't rely on Russian um, gas, we've been impacted because other countries that do rely on that Russian gas is trying to turn to other markets in order to buy. So that's come together at the same time as, you know, Ukraine was called the breadbasket um, of the world. So a huge amount of grain came out from Ukraine and that's all been disrupted. So you have all of these things coming together at the worst possible time, driving this increase in prices. But again, I'll go back to the reason why this feels so painful is because there was no resilience in the system. You know, if this sort of shock had happened, let's say in 2005, after the economy had been doing relatively well, living standards were rising, it would be painful, but it would not be catastrophic. It's the fact that we've had this period of pain and then you get this massive hammer blow and people just can't absorb it. They cannot withstand it unless the government intervenes. So in terms of the scale of the crisis, that obviously is going to hit. Now, The Guardian splashed today on, this is the report from the University of York, that two-thirds of UK families could be in fuel poverty by January. I mean, it's just astonishing to read that. We're talking, you know, people who are not just on low incomes. We're talking about people in mid-incomes mid and probably people who feel like they're doing generally okay in life, suddenly plunged into quite a desperate situation by their by, by hiking energy bills that, simply most people just cannot afford in any meaningful way so i mean just you know there's people in poverty obviously in this country i mean there's a significant chunk but i mean there's also this kind of people who are always one paycheck away from poverty so just explain just how do you see how would you sum up the scale of the, of the social catastrophe that that is going to hit the country so like, I'm really worried uh, and I'm, you know, I, I, A, I'm an optimist. So I see things through a pretty rose tinted lens. I can always see a way through, you know, our job as an organization is to try and find pathways to something better, find solutions that will solve um, a problem. Uh, and I'm worried and I'm worried for two reasons, partly because, as I say, our baseline is so weak. People were already in such a precarious position. And, you know, not just people who are in poverty, um, where they're, you know, people already not eating or heating before all of this happened. Um, but, you know, up the income scales, people were struggling, struggling to afford the basics. And then you throw this on top of it. You know, if you take a step back, the idea that it's now looking like energy bills alone, and I'll come back to other costs, about to go up to... Possibly, you know, we know 4,200 probably by January. Some are projecting it's going to go up to 5,000 plus. And the worst part of it is it looks like that's going to be sustained for a period. So it's not as if we're going to see, you know, a big increase in prices uh, next win this winter and then it eases off. We're looking at this potentially lasting for 18 months, two years, three years. I mean, people literally cannot absorb that. They cannot cope with that, particularly given the precarious position in which they started. So, you know, I, if there is an action and if there is an intervention, and in my head, I'm like, well, we are now in the equivalent of 2008. I think it's actually worse than 2008 because that was quite concentrated within the financial market. It, it's that level of acting before everything implodes that I think we're now in. And then the double whammy is energy prices, hard to deal with. Businesses aren't protected from this. 
So a lot of businesses are also facing high energy prices. And at the moment, some are passing it on on the margins, but a lot are trying to keep their prices down. They can do that for maybe six months. When you're looking at potentially a year or longer, they will start passing that on to consumers. We're already seeing the cost of consumer goods going up and it's going to go up even further. So there's a double squeeze that's coming. And then you chuck in a recession that might last for five quarters and we have the perfect storm. So, you know, what, what I'm finding terrifying is that we can all see what's coming. And it is, it is very scary. And I don't think that the government, I don't think the political class across the piece, but I certainly don't think the government has grasped this and are in the mode of almost pandemic mindset. That is the mm. scale of intervention that we need, whether the impossible suddenly becomes possible overnight. And that realisation, that click needs to happen mm. and it needs to happen fast because the longer we delay, the deeper and the more painful this crisis is going to be. So before I come on to Labour's response, the Conservatives, Liz, Liz Truss is going to become our Prime Minister. Make your peace with it, whether you like it or not. Rock in the fetal position, dribbling if you like. <laughs> it is it's going to happen. The Prime Minister of this country is going to be Liz Truss. Move on. Um, so when Liz Truss, again, the new Prime Minister, takes office, what she's going her her plans that she's put to the Tory membership are to, for example, scrap the national insurance hike, uh, but also she wants to scrap the proposed cut to, uh, sorry, increase in uh, corporation tax and uh, cut taxes more generally. What do you say to that response to the crisis? That's her kind of, that's how we'll solve the cost of living crisis as far as she's concerned. I think it's completely delusional. Um, I couldn't think of a worse set of measures in order to try to deal with the problem for two reasons. Firstly, the scale, the kind of quantum of response is nowhere near where it needs to be. So if you take something like reversing the national insurance um, um, policy, which, you know, to be honest, the government probably shouldn't have done and done it in the way that it did, that alone will help maybe around the tune of 200 pounds on average, 240 pounds on average, but it disproportionately benefits those who are better off. It does very little for those um, in the bottom half of the income scale. Corporation tax, the idea that you would cut corporation tax at this time in the hope that that will drive growth is complete nonsense because we tried that. You know, we had one of the lowest corporation tax uh, rates across Europe, and yet we still suffered from underinvestment and productivity. So all you're doing is taking precious resource out of the system to give the businesses that, quite frankly, don't need it. And it's not necessarily going to drive any change in their behaviours. Um, and so for me... I think she will have to completely recalibrate her response because if she comes in and has an emergency budget and does that set of things, I think the country will be rioting within months. I generally think that, you know, I think I'm hoping that she comes in. I hope she gets some serious Kool-Aid from her uh, officials that are like, that can explain to her the scale of what the country is facing and the scale of what she is facing as prime minister. And it will force her to revisit what she's talking about and put forward a set of measures that are commensurate with the scale of the challenge that we're facing. But at the moment, completely delusional, completely divorced from reality. I mean, I have to say, the point you made about rioting there, Salvation Comrades, the pollsters, asked, given the rising cost of living, would rioting on the streets be justified? 18 to 24-year-olds, 49% said yes, 40% said no. Amongst 35 to 44-year-olds, I'm in that group, not young in the classic sense, 
Uh, 50, uh, 41% said justified. In London, 41% justified. That's before it's really hit. So you can already see that's a sign of desperation. Um, it was Martin Luther King who, of course, said that rioting was the cry of the unheard. Um, and lots of people feel unheard, but this is before a winter of calamity. And it just shows how desperate the situation um, has become. Let's just, just move just in terms of Labour. Now, Labour's come under a lot of criticism, including from me. I was just going to say, actually, Liz Truss, because you're hoping she'll renege on her leadership promises. Keir Starmer got away with it. Um, but, but this would be good for us, for the country. So, uh, but, you know, it's uh, it's a trend. So maybe she'll follow it. Let's just, just in terms of Labour's response, Labour came into a lot of criticism for just being AWOL. Uh, but here's Ed Miliband, who I'm personally a fan of, I have to say. Um, he's one of the only shadow cabinet ministers I like. Here's what he said about Labour's plans and Sky News. I've looked at this in a lot of detail over the last few weeks. There is only one viable solution, in my view, to really protect people, to stop 50% of people falling into fuel poverty, and that is what Labour set out yesterday. And we'll dig into the detail of it in just a second, but but in terms of the popularity of the policy, I mean, you must be pretty pleased with the fact that, what, 75% of Conservative voters support extending the price cap for, for, for the energy price cap for another six months. Yeah, but, but and you know why this is? It's because people recognise this, that... Of course, the poorest in our society are going to be very badly affected, the worst affected by this. But the scale of this, Neil, is so great mm -hmm. that in a country where 40% of people have less than £1,500 worth of savings, where, you know, we're talking about bills that we've never, ever seen before, but, but, but we you... can't just say this is about the poorest. And, and this is but... the point. This is, this is the big choice that we face in the country. Are we going to act with, with decisiveness? And we can pay for this because... You know, we know those oil and gas giants are making billions. I've looked at this in a lot of... No, not playing that again, as, as much as I like Kimmy Ed Miliband's voice. Um, so, yeah, as I said, so Gordon Brown initially, and I, a lot of people suggested that actually Gordon Brown previously had been coordinating his responses with Lotto, that's the uh, leader of the opposition's office, um, but he didn't on his proposed plans because he got too frustrated, some have suggested, but he suggested temporary nationalisation. There's criticism of that. Why temporarily bring sort of energy companies to public ownership when they're loss-making and then wait for them to be profit-making and then sell them off? But nonetheless, Labour didn't commit to that. Instead, what they're doing is throwing um, huge amounts of money, uh, which will have huge impact. It will reduce people's bills. It's not it'd be churlish not, not to point out the benefits, given the scale of the calamity. What do you think of that? Because I think, you know, the argument then would be it's not... It's not reforming the structure. It's just throwing money at a broken market. As much as that is better than nothing, clearly, because it will stop people being driven into absolute calamity. And the, the response of Labour's leadership's office against nationalisation is, well, we want to spend every penny just on reducing bills rather than going to shareholders. But they are throwing money. Anyway, what do you think? Yeah, so two things. I think, firstly, the scale of the response is right. You know, I think when, when I saw the proposal, I kind of... There was a sigh of relief, so I was like, well, they get it. And actually, you are talking about a massive intervention, a massive intervention into the energy market and energy system, which is what you need. Um, but there had to be two parts to it. There's got to be a short-term response, there's got to be a long-term response. In terms of short-term response, I actually think you probably do need to freeze prices. And actually, whether you, if you look across to what um, France are doing uh, with EDF, where they've nationalised, essentially before that, there was a big intervention in the market. They are massively cross-subsidising energy. And that's what's going to have to happen. Whether you nationalise or you don't, the state is going to have to come in and it's going to have to cross-subsidise the difference between what it thinks people should pay and what the market is forcing people to pay. Because you're still buying your energy out there from the global market. 
so short term for me, you've got to freeze those prices. But I don't think that's enough, to be honest with you, because people are still dealing with the fact that we've had a you know, rise since April, but I come back to the secondary effects, all the other cost of living pressures that people are facing. And I think in the short term, you've got to combine some kind of intervention in the energy market with essentially a universal payment, a pretty much universal payment uh, that would go to 80, 90% um, of households to help them with the cost of living in the round. And then you top that up with people for benefits in order to reverse some of the cuts that we've seen in the past and just shore up the safety net. So that's what I do in the short term. But in the medium term, I agree with you, there has to be a reform story and a massive reform story. And on the energy market specifically, you know, I think there are several things that we need to do. One is about reducing demand. So, you know, we're calling for a great homes upgrade, a massive national effort to insulate millions of homes incredibly quickly, because that's how we bear down on the cost of bills. I think secondly, you've then got to look at the structure of the energy market, which has been broken for a really long time. You know, I I worked uh, on energy policy many years ago um, and actually worked on a policy which was uh, freeze energy bills and, uh, and reform the market, which has come back again uh, several years later. But you've got to reform that market. It's absolutely broken. And my view is that something is essential, something as fundamental as energy, where people don't, you don't have a choice about whether you use electricity in, you know, in this day and age, or you shouldn't have a choice about whether you heat your home um, and heat your kids in your home. Like those should be absolute essentials. And I think they should be in common ownership. They shouldn't be um, in the private market, which has, I think, broadly failed, failed to deliver that basic thing for people at costs that are affordable. And then the question is how you get there. Um, I think for me, as we transition to renewables um, and clean energy, my view is that actually, if we're gonna take ownership of something, we should be taking ownership of the green energy sector of the future. So that we are pumping the market, we're creating cooperative energy providers that are owned by us, the users, the consumers, the people, and they are pumping the market with renewables almost pushing the big fossil fuel companies out of the market because renewables will be cheaper, particularly if we delink them um, from gas, and we take over the market that way. And actually, if you do that and you, you know, combine that with the fact that you say, look, we intervene in the market in the short term and we're going to cap profits. We're going to cap profits of uh, the oil and gas producers. We're going to cap profits of the retailers. They will exit the market. And you create a public sector operator that takes on their customers, pass it on to the cooperatives. So there is a way that we get to an energy market that's owned by us. And for me, that is part of your long-term structural answer. But in the short term, however you cut it, a government is going to have to step in. They're going to have to spend billions. They're going to have to use their balance sheet in order to protect people from energy prices out there in the market. Finally, because we, we always appreciate people have to juggle kids while having to talk to us. So thank you so much. Uh, just finally, uh, Tad, well, there's a couple of just final things. Uh, one from Tad Campwell, who asks uh, if you could elaborate on how the UK is affected by the shortage of gas supplies elsewhere to the British economy. Um, I just finally, I don't know, maybe this is kind of like maybe a bit of a put your politics hat on. But I mean, surely, I mean, Liz Truss hasn't committed to the sort, I mean, she's just going on about tax cuts. She's not talking about intervening. And she's also talked about, you know, resisting handouts and all the rest of it. I mean, do you not think politically it's 
going to be absolutely impossible for a government to preside over 45 million people in its own country, many of whom vote for the Conservative Party, being driven into fuel poverty. And therefore, there's something's got to give, because, as I've said, if you've already got millions of people essentially supporting riot or thinking rioting is justified as is, um, what on earth is going to happen to this country if action isn't taken? So, yeah, just those two quick questions. Well, However you so uh, the question on the gas market, simply because um, if, for example, Germany is no longer taking its energy from uh, Russia and buying its energy from Russia, and it's turning to the global markets, turning to other uh, countries um, in, um, uh, in Asia, for example, to buy its energy, that's going to increase demand for that energy and push the prices up. So even though we have no links, you know, we only use a tiny proportion um, of Russian um, gas and oil, the fact that the gas and oil that we do use is suddenly in high demand is going to push up the prices of it. Um, on the politics of this, you know, I'm pretty confident that there's no way that, that she holds her current position, uh, not unless she wants the government to collapse, not unless she wants people um, to kick off in a massive way. And, you know, if you look at what's happening in other countries, so interestingly, we talk about France. Um, you know, France was the first mover because they could see where this was coming and the decision to essentially say to the major energy producer, we're going to cap. You know, you can't charge more than 4%. Um, and then, and in the end, they took a massive hit. So they bought them, they fully nationalized it. But look at what Spain's doing. Uh, they've just asked for um, permission from the EU in order to essentially cap um, energy prices. Portugal are doing the same. Country after country that's exposed to this is going to do the same. And the idea that our government would sit there and watch this play out, because it's not just the social impact, it's not just the pain and suffering and misery that will be out there in the country, it will also have a massive knock-on effect on the economy. So mm. they're talking about growth. You know, if you strip people, if the people have no disposable income to spend in the economy, what's going to happen to businesses, the people mm. apparently they care about? So even by the metrics of the things that they say they care about, you want to prioritise us being a global Britain, a growing economy, you starve your people, you freeze your people, that has a massive effect on the economy, that has an effect on your workforce. So however you cut it, there will be a reality check. My worry is how long that takes. You know, I hope that's a matter of like days that, you know, she comes in and she sees what's happening and she's advised and she takes that advice. But if she holds her position, it's more pain, but it will turn. It will turn because I just think she'll be under far too much pressure. And I think people will mobilise. You know, the campaign enough is enough for me struck a chord because people cannot tolerate anymore. They've had enough. You can't keep squeezing people year on, year on. And it's OK. At some point, people hit that wall. And I think they're about to hit that wall. So there will be huge pushback and the government will have to turn. Yeah, so thank you so much as ever. Honestly, always brilliant. Absolute fan fountain of, of knowledge and wisdom. And obviously the New Economics Foundation do, so I often quote them in my columns just because the research that you guys do is just absolutely invaluable, really. Um, a light in the darkness. Um, so thank you so, so much for joining us. I'll let you get get back to your family rather than Amazing. having Amazing. Thanks for having me. Lots of love. Speak to you soon. Take care of yourself. Take care. Bye-bye. Great stuff as ever. Um, now, before we talk to our next guest, who I'm very, very happy to um, and delighted to have, actually, uh, from Don't Pay UK, um, who are a mass movement to stop people, uh, to encourage people not to pay energy bills. That, well, a lot of people can't pay anyway, <laughs> if we're going to be honest, but we'll talk about that. 
Um, yeah, as ever, thank you for supporting the channel for those who do. Now, lots of people find it harder to support the channel because there's a cost of living crisis. So we have message after message of people being very appreciative, but saying they can no longer support us because they have no money. Uh, so, but our costs have gone up uh, because, uh, for one thing, our brilliant videographer, who we are taking to Labour conference, Tory conference, and doing videos about the cost of living crisis, union rates have gone up, and we always said we'd pay union wages. Um, so, if you want to, and also the Tories um, are this year. I think they're doing this because we did a video last year. I don't know if you saw our video behind the scenes at Tory party conference. Tory ministers did no like me running after that. I mean, they generally just ran away. But it was it was entertaining. Do watch it because it was funny. Um, but they've now imposed um, whopping big costs for people to attend in an attempt to stop us going and people like us who aren't part of major media organisations going. So basically, if you want to support us, if you can and only if you can, like a quid a month or three quid a month, you can do so on patreon.com forward slash orangejoes84. I really have not been as active as I should have done. Partly it's the summer, partly uh, life events, which I'm not going to go into. Um, things are just, you know, life. In the words of the great philosopher, Desiree, life, oh life, oh life. Um, but and also obviously keep supporting us on um, uh, using Super Chat, uh, like Tad Camwell. But also, uh, yeah, we've got lots of, We've got Zara Sultan to come, Dave Ward of the CWU, to talk to us about Enough is Enough. So before I bring in our next guest, actually, let me just quickly mention Enough is Enough this week um, launched. Enough is Enough, as I mean, just mentioned, is a mass civil right, uh, civil, sorry, yeah, a mass movement uh, uh, to put on op uh, an alternative, um, given the Labour leadership are not doing so, bringing together trade unions, left-wing MPs, community organisations, setting up grassroots organisations across the country, Tribune, the brilliant... Uh, progressive magazine is involved and they really struck a chord uh mick lynch who's become a superstar um he's you know the great working class leader of our time right now uh, the leader of the rmt the royal maritime trade union uh, they're he trying to get at him and smear him because he's he's so effective let's just hear mick lynch talking about enough is enough what we're seeing across the country i addressed a meeting of thousands of people last night i addressed a massive one in glasgow on tuesday there is a wave of reaction uh, amongst working people to the way they're being treated. People are getting poorer every day of the week. People can't pay their bills. They're getting treated despicably in the workplace. I think there will be generalised and synchronised action. It may not be in a traditional form, but we've seen the, the post office workers and BT. We've seen uh, bus workers in London out on strike tomorrow and over the weekend. I think there is a massive response coming from working people because they're fed up with the way they're being treated. There it is. Obviously, if you're not following Enough is Enough, do you follow them on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all the rest of it? But they're not the only uh, game in town. We will, as I said, have lots of interviews uh, because we want to support Enough is Enough, obviously, and give them um, the support that they need, encourage everyone to support them. We're going to talk now uh, to Lewis here, who's joining... You're in the northeast, is that right? Let me get this absolutely right before I mess up. Northeast? Yeah, East Yorkshire. So, yeah, technically Oh, East Yorkshire. Yeah, that'll yeah. take you. So, Lewis Ford. Now, your part, you're a big support of don't pay uk which i think kind of says does what it says on the tin but just, just explain a little bit about <laughs> what it's what, campaign <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly what what give the summary what is how did it come about what's it all about um so i can only really say about my involvement so i became involved three weeks ago after seeing various social media posts you know kind of seeing it pop up and yeah, the curiosity kind of took me and, and started following the breadcrumb um signed up to become a local organizer um and since then it's just kind of it's just kind of grown and grown and yeah now now i'm here 
So a lot of people might be thinking, well, I'd love not to pay my bills, but well, mm -hmm. they can't. A lot of, we, we've already mentioned yeah. 45 million people face being able to fuel poverty, but they might be like, ah, the bailiffs are going to come around. So, or, you know, I'll be taken to the courts or my bill, my energy will be cut off. What do you say? What's your kind of feeling on that? It's not as straightforward as that, is it? I mean, most of us are already in debt. Um, you know, most of us know how, how debt works. Um, so, you know, it's not going to be as straightforward as October 1st, county diet debit, October 2nd, bailiffs fitting a, a prepay meter. Um, you know, it's, it's more, it's more nuanced than that. Um, the, I think the main, the main message really, the one, the one that I kind of, uh, like to kind of repeat is um you know some of us are choosing not to pay whereas a lot of us cannot pay you know that's the that's the overall thing isn't it we're we're trying to stand with people who can't pay so we're saying don't pay to help people who can't pay so i mean about a hundred thousand is that right about a hundred thousand have signed up i mean what do you think about that just the fact you know that's a lot of people signing up to civil is civil disobedience we're talking about here yeah i mean Imagine that number marching on London. You know that'd be that'd be something to to witness, wouldn't it? Um, and it's people from all walks of life, you know, all over the country. And it's something you can do alongside everything else. You know, you don't have to organise buses, get down to a, get down to a single city. Um, so you know, the number itself. I mean, that's only the beginning. You know, we've got to do this however many more times now to get to that million pledge. So. I mean, where do, because we had, I mean, I think back to the uh, the poll tax movement. My mm. parents were part of that. In fact, as a wee whippersnapper, or I say, should say wee Ben, because I lived in Scotland at the time. <laughs> but I was taken to Glasgow and I remember, I, remember, I started a chant. I didn't know what, I didn't know what the chant meant. But um, I started a chant. Uh, I think it was like, stop the poll tax. I was given a placard. Uh, and out of pity, people started chanting it. Anyway, that was my proudest political moment to this day. But, you know, millions of people, refused to pay the poll tax obviously back in the day and actually it had a big role in taking down margaret thatcher so i don't know i mean do you, do you see this as partly kind of like you know kind of like inspired a little bit by that by that experience i suppose absolutely i mean it, it's a proven method you know we you're always told to vote with your wallets if you know you don't like a you don't like a business you know, it, it's being used repeatedly you are you don't have to shop here well okay then we don't have to shop here but there's no there's no alternative to to energy companies. There used to be. You used to be able to shop around it every every year and get a better price. Now we're being told not to shop around because the price we're going to get is terrible. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Do you just, I mean, what's your own, if you don't mind, it's quite a personal question, but your own personal fears about just, you know, we're looking at 
you know, energy bills of maybe 4,500 quid on average. So actually that means some people will have higher energy bills yeah. than that. Well, just in terms of your experience or people, you know, people, you know, your community, what, what do you say? My, my predicted energy bill for January is uh, £987 for January. That's one month. You know, I, I've been, <laughs> I've paid that in a year. Um, so to have that for one month, and then obviously it's going to get to April. And by the time it gets to April, it starts getting warmer, the price will go up again. And then we'll get to July again, and the price will go up again. So that's my fear, is that we keep paying and it keeps rising. And if no one does anything about it, it's just going to keep going until we've got, you know, as Miata said, people are people are dying. People are going to die. And I think you quoted Jack Monroe earlier, who said, you know, she's being spoken to about people who, when they can't pay it, they're going to die. And it's, you know, it's the vulnerable, it's the disabled, it's the elderly. They're always the, they're always the ones first to suffer. And if we don't stand up and do something about it, then we just had two years of pandemic where we've, you know, we've had our vulnerable mm. people in society thrown under the bus. So, you know, we can't can't keep leaving them behind. So just finally, what would you say to people who might be worried or anxious about signing up to the campaign? What you know, what you know, maybe what made you do the that final step to doing it? What would you say to those people? So we're only gonna take action if there's a million pledges. So we're only doing this if there is mass support. So the whole point is that they cannot take action on that many people. So, you know, a million people is, was decided as the minimum number needed in order for this to be effective. So, yeah, if you are worried, you know, come and speak to us. If You know, come and get involved. You don't, you know, there might be a situation, there might be a situation or a reason why you cannot not pay your, your bill for whatever reason. But if you get involved, you can encourage other people not to. And, you know, at, at that point, if you can't, if you can't pledge, if you get two people to pledge, there you go. That's that. That's your pledge short, isn't it? Lewis, really, really appreciate you uh, taking the time to join us. I know you've got your mates coming around, so mm. it's good to just take a little before before you before you uh, nice evening in. Honestly, really, really appreciate it. Don't pay UK. Really important campaign. People I know. Uh, who I've known for a very long time are very much centrally involved in the campaign, who I trust. Yeah. Uh, it's a, yeah. such an important campaign. It's in that long tradition of civil disobedience, um, yeah. which won many of our rights um, and freedoms. And we depend on people like yourself. <laughs> all the good ones. All the good ones. Yeah. So, Lewis, have a great night. And uh, thanks so much for joining us. Fantastic. Cheers, Owen. Take care, everybody. Take care. Bye. Take care. Now, shortly, we're going to talk to the brilliant Rivka Brown from Navara Media, of course, good friends of mine. Oh, she's, to be honest, probably about to do it now. Um, I'll just, before we bring her in, if you're watching, obviously, as ever, press like and subscribe. Do you know what, Rivka? I'll just, I'll just, I saw you appear. You might as well drag you in now. Yeah. I'm going to do something else. But... <laughs> wow, this Super. is so such a different experience to being on Tiski. We're really just rolling with the punches. Yeah, just sod it. You know, it's just play, you know, there's, it's, it's chaos here. Total chaos. Tiski, obviously, very slick, organised affair. Michael Walker being, I think, slick and organised is how I'd sum up Michael. Yeah. Good summary. Uh, yeah. Me and Michael went to um, uh, we went to Margate Pride at the weekend. Um, we both recovered, I think. I think we both look quite fresh now. We're doing yeah, all right. You're looking really good. You're better than you ever have, Owen. I hear you've got a personal trainer. Oh, all right, Rivka. Do you what? That, that'll bring in the. <laughs> Oh, Alan Jones has got. I'm complimenting you. You look wonderful. He's got a personal trainer. He's a, um, I, I've only only kept do the occasional session. Actually, just to be fair, I don't generally do. I don't know why I'm trying to defend myself. I don't normally don't do yourself. that. I'm pro personal trainer. I just can't afford one. 
Yeah, well, there we go. Um, but I should <laughs> emphasize, I only do very, very occasional sessions. It's generally just, unfortunately, as you can see, this is just this is just my own amateurish efforts. Anyway, right. What we're talking about is very, 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 very important. We're talking about Apsana Bagan, who is a Labour MP. She's a proud representative and fighter for her community in East London. She's also a survivor of domestic abuse. Now, earlier this year, she was signed off sick. That did not stop local officers in her party driving through a trigger ballot process, partly overseen by friends of her former husband. Earlier this year, an independent domestic violence advocate working with Refuge. And by the way, I should be clear, I'm quoting here from the brilliant work of Rivka Brown, who's been working on this uh, and has published an article about it yesterday. So working with Refuge, a domestic violence charity, sent an email marked urgent to Keir Starmer and David Evans, who is the general secretary of the Labour Party, declaring, I believe what we are seeing in this current trigger process is a further extension of the abuse she has already endured. They did not answer that email. Now, before you ask you about this, let's just actually hear from Apsana Begin. This is a speech she did earlier this year. We have to recognise that the establishment hostility presents big challenges for us, of course, and that the lengths that the right wing and the party are prepared to go to defeat the left are frightening, as I know more than most. As a survivor of domestic abuse facing vexatious charges, the last 18 months of false accusations, online sexist, racist and Islamophobic abuse and threats to my safety have been exceedingly difficult. And I'm still having to cope. And I'm still having to cope with such things on a daily basis. As such, it's been really hard for me to speak out actually and uh, about what I've had to go through. And it goes beyond this summer, actually, and it goes beyond the last few years since being elected. I felt like I've been on the run and at risk around a decade now. I know what it feels like to feel powerless and constantly afraid. And I've known what it feels like to feel completely alone. But I don't want to tell a story of victimhood or hopelessness. Because around five years ago, I heard this person called Jeremy Corbyn saying things that made sense and offering an alternative vision for the future, talking about socialism. And comrades, it's this solidarity that has kept me going. It's this solidarity that has inspired me. So we could just explain, just explain a bit of the background of what's happened with Upsana. So tell me about in terms of, you know, how this all started, I suppose. Yeah. It's very difficult to encapsulate the whole kind of trauma that Absan has been through, because as she says, it's been going on for almost a decade. So really, the story begins um, in around 2011, when a young Absana Begum meets Etisham Hack, working in the office of the then mayor of Tower Hamlets, Lutfer Rahman. The pair start a relationship. Um, Absana at this time is caring for her very unwell father and is very vulnerable. Um, they then elope. He's a bit older than her. He's also been twice divorced. And so the relationship is quite frowned upon by her family from whom she then becomes really alienated. The relationship, as she later describes, then takes a very sinister turn. He, um, according to Apsana, becomes kind of coercive and controlling of her. Um, and two years later, their marriage um, ends um, after she flees him. Now, uh, it's 
after this, that Apsana, you know, who's freshly out of an uh, what she describes as an abusive relationship, uh, happens upon a momentum picnic where, you know, having been told for years that she wasn't worth anything, that, you know, that being made to feel small um, in, you know, her personal life, she's told that she can actually be something and that a young, you know, hijabi Muslim woman from a working class family um, can actually make a difference in her community community. Um, and as she describes in the video that you've just shown, she was inspired by Jeremy Corbyn um, to, to, to kind of get involved in the Labour Party. She becomes involved in her CLP in Tower Hamlets, then becomes, I think, one of the kind of executive members of it, then, um, as we know, uh, stands for uh, election in 2019. Now, during this time, her ex-husband, Etisham uh, Hag, has also been a Labour councillor um, and seems to be following her around wherever she goes. So whether that's momentum meetings that she's chairing or later hustings um, for the general election selection campaign, um, he's there often being disruptive, laughing at what she's saying, um, refusing to leave when people ask him to. Um, and, and a lot of people are very confused about this because they're like, who's this guy that seems to be following Apsana around? And the thing is, like she says in the video that you just showed there, she doesn't tell anyone who he is because she's ashamed and she's afraid that no one is going to believe that this is the man that she used to be married to and who she says was abusive towards her. The thing is, at some point, she decides to go public and she starts to tell people in the run up of, to her um, election in 2019 about what's happened and who this man is. So from the moment she enters Parliament, the Labour Party knows full well exactly who Atisham Hak is and the kind of danger that she says he poses to her. Now, the fact that she's won election in Parliament doesn't actually end the story. It's not that, you know, Etisham went after her, but then kind of gave up after she was elected. What seems to have happened is that, um, you know, Etisham and people close to Etisham um, were unhappy with her election and have been kind of trying to find ways of removing her. So most notably is the housing fraud claim, which she describes as spurious and was indeed thrown out by a judge in the end, and which was brought by Tower Hamlets Council, which at the time was run by Apsana's ex-husband's friend, the mayor John Biggs, um, who was looked for Rahman's successor. Housing, a housing fraud trial was brought against Apsana by Tower Hamlets Council, run by Etisham's friends, for, you know, costing the council an amount that was greater than Apsana was even said to have defrauded on the basis of a claim made by her ex-husband's brother-in-law. Now, this is just a maddening, nightmarish situation for any survivor of domestic abuse, but to, not only for your ex-husband to appear wherever you go, but for his friends to pursue you in the courts to try and imprison you um, after you've won office um, on the basis of their kind of personal and political kind of vendettas against you. Now, all of this is going on in full view of um, the Labour Party and indeed the public at large. You know, we all saw we all saw Apsana Begum be dragged through the courts on the basis of what she describes as a spurious claim brought by after a complaint by her ex-husband's brother-in-law the Labour Party has been 
begged, you know, whether that's the regional party, the safeguarding team, Keir Starmer, David Evans to act. And they've repeatedly deferred to process. They've said, yeah, we'll look into it. Sure. I'm sure there's like a form you can fill in. Mm, yeah, that sounds bad. But it's now got to this point where Apsana is facing a, a trigger ballot, which is, you know, a process, like I say in the article, all MPs undergo where the CLP gets to decide, should we keep our MP or should we put them up for a competitive reselection process? Um, she's undergoing this process, which has been overseen by friends of her ex-husband, despite the fact that for half of that trigger ballot process, she was hospitalized and later, you know, off sick because of her mental and physical breakdown, which has been triggered, as a domestic violence expert has said, by her treatment by the Labour Party. This should be like a national scandal. And yet it's like absolutely nowhere in our media that the Labour Party and the country's only hijabi MP is signed off sick because of domestic abuse, which the Labour Party has been perpetuating, according to a domestic violence expert. Now, it's, it's notable that when Jeremy Corbyn was leader, Ellie Reeves, another Labour MP, had there was this attempt potentially to start um, a trigger process. Jeremy, the leadership actually intervened, even though Ellie Reeves was, was not a Corbyn supporter, she's not from the left of the Labour Party at all. Uh, but there was outcry and all the rest of it, and they stopped that from happening on the grounds that she was pregnant. Um, now, this email which was sent, I mean, we're talking about something completely different here. This is just on a different planet, a different scale. This email sent by, as you talk about in this brilliant piece, about an independent domestic violence advocate working with Refuge, saying that the current trigger process, they see it as a further extension of the abuse she's already endured. What does it say that there's been no reply, no response to that from Keir Starmer or David Evans, the general secretary of the Labour Party? I mean, I think it sort of tells you everything that you need to know, which is that, um, you know, the Labour Party will claim that it hasn't done anything. You know, Keir Starmer hasn't been actively abetting what's been happening with the trigger process. He hasn't been kind of uh, supporting any of the CLP or regional kind of Labour Party officials to continue, um, you know, Apsana's treatment through the trigger process. He's just not done anything. And this is precisely the problem. What what culpability does one have when one knows what is happening to your MP in their constituency, that you've been told that this constitutes an extension of the abuse that they've suffered in the past at the hands of their ex-husband, allegedly, and you still do nothing? I think this is like something that um, Mish Rahman, who's a member of the NEC, Labour's National Executive Committee, describes as hiding behind process. Others might describe it as kind of bureaucratic or procedural violence. It's the use of process um, and the kind of deferral to kind of, um, you know, why don't you talk to our safeguarding team about this? Why don't we refer you to kind of this form that you need to fill in or this complaint that you need to submit um, as a way of executing kind of violence against a, a sitting MP? You know, yes, Keir Starmer and David Evans haven't done anything, but that's precisely the point. So, you know, 
I mean, it's a facile comment, but it's true. If this was an MP on the right of the party, all hell would break loose. If this was under Jamie Corbyn's leadership, I don't. I mean, just imagine, just imagine. Yeah, I now, mean, we don't have to imagine, Owen. Like this, this, this did happen in 2019. Luciana Berger um, quit the Labour Party in February, claiming that she'd faced a campaign of bullying and harassment in her constituency in Liverpool, and it catalyzed the creation of Change UK. You know, rest in peace. You know, it's it's <laughs> exactly. You know, it was a major crisis for the Labour Party when Luciana Berger quit because of harassment and what she claimed was kind of anti-Semitic treatment in her constituency. We now have an MP who has signed off sick, who has admitted to A&E after treatment within her CLP, which the Labour Party had been warned of multiple times, and which not only that, constituted an extension of this like horrific trauma which she says that, that she's been through um and and it's basically not being picked up at all in fact you know we've we've seen right-wing commentators um mock uh journalists from navarra media like my colleague moya for example for for trying to raise this issue by saying like you know this 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 is a ridiculous kind of uh you know, thing to be suggesting should be higher up the political agenda. You know, this is like a passing kind of internal like Labour Party beef at best. And this is the problem because it's so complex, because we're talking about constituency Labour parties and party rules and trigger processes and kind of boring internal bureaucracy. It's really easy for the national media to dismiss this as kind of either boring or factional or not worth paying attention to. No, this is about a woman who has who says that she has survived domestic abuse, domestic abuse that is a domestic violence expert says ongoing as a result of the Labour Party's actions. This is nothing to do with kind of processes and due processes, which is what, you know, Keir Starmer and David Evans would have us believe. This is a process. We can't do anything about it. No, this is we're talking about a survivor and a party that one person says, one expert says is perpetuating her abuse. Now, Jess Phillips, who's a very prominent Labour MP, and her background is in the partly in the domestic, you know, the domestic violence sector, violence against girls and women sector, and obviously that's something she talks about a lot. Now, she's been challenged about this, and she tweeted quite defensively, calling herself a friend of Ipsana Begum. Um, what I'm just interested in the role she's had, or maybe the alleged role behind the scenes, um, yeah. and what you think about kind of her, you know, should she be public? Yeah. Well, I mean, I kind of think you've captured it, which is that, you know, Jess Phillips, who's the shadow uh, minister for domestic violence and safeguarding, um, has, you know, there is no doubt that she has in private um, supported Apsana and made representations to the leadership about their treatment of her. That is kind of indisputable. Um, and I'm sure she would corroborate this. And and in fact, I think on Twitter, she she did kind of say that in private, she's been supportive of her she also added i think in that tweet this is you know between me and apsana this i think is where the problem lies when you have the kind of platform that a shadow minister for domestic violence has and the you know media rounds and the talking um the the, the platform that someone like jess phillips has the question is do you have a responsibility to use that platform to advocate on behalf of your colleague and to put pressure on the leadership from outside to act now what we have here is essentially the exposure of the factionalism within the labor party the reason why many people would say the reason why jess phillips is not more clearly and publicly um you know 
advocating on behalf of uh, Apsana Begum in the same way that she is in private is because she doesn't want to be seen to undermine Keir Starmer's leadership. You know, this is obviously um, uh, more than a factional issue. And this is something that John McDonnell says in his repeated emails to the leadership. This has nothing to do with factionalism. This shouldn't be about what side you're on. Ellie Reeves, I mean, you mentioned that she wasn't a fan of Corbyn. She's the sister of Rachel Reeves. She also was was supposed to be facing a trigger ballot process at that time. You know, members of her constituency party had threatened to trigger her on the basis of her um, uh, opposition to uh, Chris Williamson's readmission to the Labour Party. So she was basically being threatened with with a trigger because she wasn't supporting this, you know, left wing MP. So she was literally being triggered because she was seen as too right wing. And yet still, Corbyn intervened on her behalf, not because she was sick, not because she was even on maternity leave at that point. She was 22 weeks pregnant, I believe, literally just because she was pregnant and because he felt, you know, um, it was the right and compassionate thing to do to waive the very stressful trigger ballot process um, on her behalf, despite factional differences, despite the fact, as I say, she wasn't even formally um, off sick or on maternity leave. And I think, you know, what this speaks to is, is the kind of ruthlessness of the party right. The party left um, has demonstrably shown compassion to the party right on uh, appropriate occasions. The party left has no such compassion. It's funny, in the Ford report, one of its um, recommendations that Martin Ford QC makes um, is compassion training. Now, this is interesting because obviously Keir Starmer's response uh, to the Ford report was that all of the problems described were a Corbyn problem. But I'm not sure I can think of anyone who's in more in need of compassion training than Keir Starmer. Mm. Well, can you give compassion training to, an, to a robot? It's difficult to say. So it's a tricky question, we'll have isn't to it? Ask Elon Musk. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's let's go back to whoever has created whichever mad scientist <laughs> this intriguing experiment called Kestama. Um, Rika, that that was a brilliant exposition of a truly disturbing and quite harrowing case, actually, which speaks a huge amount about obviously the treatment of a one of the few Muslim female MPs in Parliament about about who matters, according to the media commentary, and other Labour MPs and who doesn't. Um, but Apsana deserves our solidarity. She's a brilliant fighter who's gone through so much and yet has has given a voice to people who are dispossessed and don't have a voice in British politics. And, you know, it, it is gruesome to see what has happened. And, and, and people have made, actually, in the comments, noted in Tower Hamlets, and she represents a constituency in the borough of Tower Hamlets, that the party Aspire, which was set up by Lutfer Rahman, who also won the mayoralty in Tower Hamlets, that, you know, if you if you end up with Epsana Begum being kicked out, then Aspire may well have a good chance of unseating whoever replaces her because of the anger that that could produce amongst large sections of the electorate in her constituency. Anyway, Rivka, it's been an honour. I will see you soon, I am sure. Lots of love yeah. and enjoy your bye, Thursday. Bye. Lots of love. Yeah. See you in a bit. Bye bye. Great stuff from Vivka. And obviously, do you follow her journalism as ever? Now, finally, one of my big bugbears, one of the things that drives me to total destruction is the scapegoating, the blaming, the demonizing of young people for being hammered for so many years under this government that they are somehow to blame for their plight 
that they're lazy. They don't have enough grift, they graft. They don't have enough, you know, that, that the reason they're struggling is because it's all their fault. Now, I bring this up because I was on the Jeremy Vine show this week and a caller rang in who had quite a lot to say. Let's just hear what he had to say. And I just want to talk about my response. A lot of people like to go after young people and go on about how easy they have it. Young people have been screwed over for ages. Their living standards have been stagnating and falling, unlike previous generations who had a better lot in life than their parents. They're often driven into insecure works where they have to work all ridiculous hours just to live. I'm talking about Deliveroo, I'm talking about Uber, I'm talking about all these precarious jobs where people work massive hours and often get very little pay. They don't have the pensions of your generations. They don't have the security of jobs of your generation either. At the same time, they're often saddled with debt because they went to university, uh, which has become a precondition in this country to getting many jobs. Their lives have become very, very hard. They're working very hard. But they, their, their wages are falling and have let's, been falling for the let, longest period. Let's let Tony respond. Uh, Tony, oh, what do you make of what uh, Owen's just said? Hold on. When, when we bought our home, we saved, my wife and myself, we saved and we put deposit down. We went into a house with nothing. All it had got was a cooker and a sink and a fireplace. Nowadays, when they want to buy a house, they want it fully carpeted, fitted kitchens, fitted bedrooms, and they want a four-by-four four on the drive. Now, I live opposite a children's nursery, and I see parents turn up here at 8 o'clock in the morning, and they've got, they got Mercedes, BMWs, expensive cars. Tony, so, 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 I'm sorry. Home ownership has collapsed amongst younger people in this country, not because people have high expectations about having renovated properties. It's because house prices have ro risen astronomically and the ratio yeah. between the average wage in this country and house prices has massively gone up. So it's just not possible to afford it. And I'm sorry, Tony, again, there's this problem in this country with a lot of political debates where people think the plural of anecdote is data. They think that they've seen something in their street or something and they think Absolutely. that's British society. Well, I'm sorry, Tony, the evidence doesn't bear up what you're saying because British workers work some of the longest hours okay. in the whole of Europe okay. and younger workers in particular are driven into low-paid, often zero-hour contracts where they work lots of hours but get very little back. Now... Where to begin? <laughs> I did my best. Um, if you're wondering why I closed my eyes midway through that particular segment, it's because when I have to listen to people talking complete and utter nonsense, sometimes I just go to my happy place where I'm calm and peaceful. Yeah, I mean, for a start, you know, this idea that the reason that young people are struggling is they expect carpets. I mean, literally, that's what that's what we're now reducing this debate to. Young people are so greedy and grasping, they want carpets. <laughs> Where to begin? If he's living in an area full of BMWs, I would imagine he's in a very prosperous area because the average Brit does not have a BMW. There are millions of people who actually can't afford a car in Britain. Actually, a, a substantial chunk of the population can't afford cars. And of people who do have cars, often because they live in areas with very bad public transport, incidentally, um, they, uh, they don't own BMWs. Um, now, I, I would imagine when Tony bought his home uh, many years ago, the amount he had to spend on a deposit... Uh, relative to the wage he was earning was much, much lower because the reason that home ownership has collapsed, and let's be clear, home ownership rate for middle-income young people fell from 65% to 27% 
over the last two decades or so, not because young people suddenly decided they want what well, they wanted carpets uh, or they were all owning BMWs, but because house prices have spiraled out of control at the same time that many young people have suffered a squeeze in their real terms wages. Now, this is what young people have gone through. And it's very important that we make this very, very clear. Young people went through first the financial crash and then the ideologically driven austerity that David Cameron and George Osborne imposed on the population, which particularly hit young people. This is not to call for war generations, incidentally. There were 1.9 million pensioners in Britain who live in poverty. It is also a fact that because disproportionately older people vote for the Conservative Party, the Tories ring-fenced support for older people, not least the triple lock in pensions. So the overall living standards of pensioners was protected. Home ownership actually went up amongst pensioners and they benefited, of course, from a rise in house prices. Not so for young people driven into a rip-off and unregulated private rented sector, where in, for example, the capital, they can expect to spend half their wages on on, on rent, uh, where they've been kicked out of those homes with very little notice. So uh, depriving them of the ability to set down routes. If they want a council home, they can, they can frankly whistle because council home waiting lists uh, span many, many uh, years. And are prioritised for those most in need because we don't build the council housing that this country needs. Their youth services, absolutely decimated across the country. Uh, their, their wages have disproportionately, of course, stagnated and fallen compared to even the rest of the British uh, population. The welfare state that many of them depend on, including in-work benefits, topping up the low wages that many young people have, they've obviously faced uh, terrible, terrible cuts, uh, whether they obviously suffered real terms cuts to their educations from per pupil spending in schools and sixth forms. They were saddled with debt if they dared to dream to a university education for which all of society benefits. And if they're in the jobs market, they often face being an insecure zero hour contract work uh, where they don't often have the security of knowing when they're going to work um, and, you know, where they have to work all hours. They don't have the pensions and the other basic rights that workers did have and should have. Um, incidentally. Um, all of these are huge calamities that young people have suffered. And then you had the pandemic when young people rightly formed a cordon sanitaire amongst older people. Yes, of course, young people are at risk, for example, um, of long COVID. I know younger people who've had long COVID, but it is obviously a fact. Statistically, they were very unlikely to die of COVID. The vast majority of the 180,000 or so people who died of COVID, many of them avoidably, of course, are older people who younger people did their best to protect. But then younger people then often suffer terrible consequences, like being locked in university campuses, paying huge amounts of money for their university degrees, and yet not getting a proper university um, experience. And now the consequences, of course, of the unwinding of the pandemic are the social consequences, of, again, are disproportionately suffered by younger people. The triple lock pension, rightly protected. We should protect that. Older people deserve to be protected, but so do younger people. And younger people are not being protected. They're getting, obviously, disproportionately hammered by energy bills because they don't often have the money or the savings compared to much of the rest um, of the population. They're, they're, you know, they're often in a rip-off private rented sector where they can't even pay their struggling for their rent, let alone their energy bills. And, and, you know, the work that they often is available to them, while they're also indebted, of course, because of their university education, or half of them are, the half who go to university. Um, you know, they, 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 you know, all of these things are a perfect storm that have enveloped the lives of younger people. It isn't their fault. It's the consequences of the Conservative Party and their policies and a broken social order. And it is, frankly, a disgrace for those relatively secure 
older people, and I'm not talking about those in poverty, the 1.9 million pensioners in poverty in this country, to come on national television, many of whom benefited from the post-war social democratic consensus of a stronger welfare state, of strong trade unions that had collective bargaining, because younger people have suffered the consequences of weak trade unions that aren't able to protect people. So the collapse of strong trade unions, they benefited, of course, many of those older people. And of course, those who went to university were not saddled with debt. You know, to come on national television and castigate and denounce younger people as though they're living the lap of luxury and the reason they can't afford homes is because they're demanding carpets. I mean, it's just, it's grotesque. It's sickening. It has to be called out. And that's why I'm raising it now because, frankly, it does my absolute nutting. And, you know, the, the idea that those who don't understand how well they've got it, in the case of that particular caller, uh, you know, thumbing their nose up at younger people who have, really actually sacrificed a lot for older generations and have suffered consequences. You know, it used to be the case that if you were young, you would expect, as a birthright in this country, a better lot in life than your parents had. And that has been stripped away from younger people. And it's not their fault. It's not because they're lazy. It's not because they work shy. It's because of a broken social order propped up by a conservative party, which has hammered and kicked younger people with wild abandon because they know quite rightly that younger people aren't going to vote for them. And do you know what? What will happen in time, and I'm absolutely assured of this in my own head, is those younger people, the millennials, the Generation Z, they're going to get their vengeance and their vengeance will be justice. It will be a different sort of society. And I think we'll see that in the coming months. Enough is enough, for example, and other mass movements that are already involved in things like climate justice movements, for example, Black Lives Matter, uh, support for LGBTQ rights. All of this is going to come together and those younger people are going to show leadership, courage and determination. They've already shown resilience. They're going to show leadership because, frankly, many of them are fed up and they don't think they should be treated like this anymore. And they don't frankly, take very kindly to people coming on national television to suggest that they're in their state because it's all their fault. Rant over. Thank you very much. Anyway, whew, um, I'm going to leave you all to it. It's been a long show. We've covered a lot today. Uh, we've got a lot of interviews coming up, including, as I said, uh, with left-wing MPs, trade union leaders. We'll also talk to people, of course, outside the echo chamber. We have uh, we are, well, like Conservative Party Conference, we're going to Conservative Party Conference, even though the Tories are ripping us off and making us pay some extortionate fee to go. Thank you for that, the Conservative, Conservative government. Um, we're also going to Labour Conference, if they give me my press pass this year. Um, I mean, if they don't, they are beyond belief. And um, I have obviously applied for that, so we will... Um, we will see how that goes um, with our brilliant videographer. And we're going to do videos about the impact of the cost of living crisis on ordinary people in this country as this autumn uh, in, in, is obviously on us not that long now. It is still warm, but it will start to get colder um, and the impact that will have on people. So do support us if you can, the patreon.com forward slash It's not millionaires supporting us for obvious reasons. Um, you keep the show on the road. You keep the videos the, um, the, on YouTube, on Facebook. Um, as well as our clips, as well as our podcasts. You keep all of that uh, going and we've got all these videos to come. As I said, I've not been active for various personal reasons, but I will sort all that out. Everything will be fine. And um, so I will, oh, we're doing a show. We are doing a show this weekend. It will either be Saturday or Sunday. So just give me a heads up. We'll work it out. And um, I think that's it. Do press like. Oh, subscribe. Oh, God, actually. Ooh, hello. <laughs> Let me say thanks to the... I, 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 I made a note that I should have done this properly. Thank you to Anne Hayfield, uh, Plum Duff, 
uh, Tad Campwell as ever uh, for your support on Super Chat during the show. Uh, as I said, hit like, hit subscribe, uh, leave comments. Great to have comments. Love to. I read all the comments on YouTube, including the ones slagging me off. You know, just for my own personal mental well-being. <laughs> it's nice to know how awful I am. Um, but thank you, everybody, and um, I will speak to you all soon. Lots of love. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting, and I certainly did. Uh, do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road, uh, forward slash Owen Jones 84. Leave us some stars, that'd be nice. Spread the word. And I look forward to speaking to you soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.